The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Amen. It is so good to uh, be able to worship the Lord together, even though we're separated in space. My name is Terry Jank. I'm one of the pastors here and have the privilege of um, being part of this church family and my wife Pat and I want to extend a, a great deal of thanks to our church family for many who have extended kindness to us um, as uh, Pat's mom passed away just over a week ago and uh, we have been just showered with a blessing from, uh, from you and thank you. Um, and you're, you're welcome to join uh, the, the virtual service that will be taking place this afternoon at 2 p.m. in the very same spot that you found this service online. So... Uh, so I, I welcome you there. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the book of Genesis again. And um, if you want a, an outline of the message, you could go to our webpage and click on the little blue box that says uh, Weekly Bulletin Update. And you'll find uh, my outline for the message there today. So, as you know, the Bible is divided into two parts. There is the Old Testament and the New Testament, the, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And um, the difference between the Old and the New are, are radical, and yet they're so very much part of the same storyline. And uh, the events surrounding the, the birth of Isaac, which is our text this morning, is a passage that also the Apostle Paul uses in the New Testament to explain New Covenant, and it's an incredibly interesting passage. So we're going to actually read two portions from the Scripture this morning. We're going to read, first of all, in Genesis chapter 21, and then we're going to be also reading in Galatians chapter 4. And so if you at home uh, are able to uh, open your Bibles with me, let's begin by looking at Genesis chapter 21 and beginning in verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears me will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And now turn in your Bibles to the New Testament, to the book of Galatians and chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And we're going to begin reading in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, Bearing children for slavery, she is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the other Jerusalem from above is free, and she is our mother, 
For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. May God bless his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask you now, God, that you might uh, bring a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know you better. That even as I preach this sermon this morning, that I might know you better through this scripture, Lord. That, that we might enter more deeply into the promises of God in Jesus Christ. That, that we might have the veil torn away a little more so that we can see deep within the incredible place where you have offered us fellowship with you, the living God. We pray that we would understand more of the riches of glory in Christ Jesus, the freedom that we have as sons and daughters of God. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to make these things plain, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've called my sermon this morning, The Birth of Isaac, a lesson in the covenant of grace, but I could have called it uh, something like learning to laugh. And you'll see why in a little while, because the kind of Ishmael faith that we could see in Scripture is the kind of faith that kills laughter, and an Isaac relationship with God is the kind of faith that actually is evidenced by laughter. And so I'm going to begin with a question this morning, and the question is, who is it that are the true people of God? I'm not saying it as a trick question, um, and it's not necessarily a simple question, because um, you cannot answer it simply with a checkbox list of things that are religious. For example, we could say, if you say the people of God on earth are those who pray, well, there's a whole bunch of people that pray on earth. Muslims are very good at diligent prayer every day. If you said that the people of God are those who go to places of worship, we would be amazed at how many places of worship the Hindu people have. If we said that the people of God are those who read holy books, well, every religion has a holy book. Buddhists have many holy books. If we were to say that the people of God read specifically the Bible, well, we would have to acknowledge that the Jehovah's Witnesses read the Bible a lot and study it. If we were to say that the people of God on earth are those who do mission trips, we'd have to acknowledge that the Mormon church is incredible at mission trips. And so it's not simple enough to just say who does lots of religious things. We have to ask ourselves, who are the people of God and what does it mean really? And why is it such an exclusive question and why is it that the Bible has an exclusive answer? Why can't there be many roads that lead to God and many different kinds and variations of the people of God on earth? And what does the Bible teach about this very thing? And how is it that the faith that Jesus Christ founded is so very different than every other religion? 
These are the, some, some of the questions that I hope that this morning's scriptures will unpack for us. And we're going to address it all by looking at the birth of Isaac. The birth of Isaac. Now you'll know that the Old Testament and the New Testament have a very interesting relationship. The Old Testament is often said that the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. And the interesting thing is that there's one Bible, it's a unity. There's only one message, one storyline. And yet so often what we find is that the Old Testament history is what the New Testament theology is built on. And that's what we find when we look at this scripture today. We find that in the Old Testament there is a historical facts and a historical count, but there's a figurative meaning and a theological meaning in the New Testament. The content of holy history is found in the Genesis passage I read, but the intent of the Holy Spirit is found in the Galatians passage that I read. And so this morning to answer the question, who really are the people of God, we're going to look at the birth of Isaac in two lenses, one through the lens of the Old Testament, which means looking at it through the lens of laughter, which you'll see why in a moment, and secondly, we'll look at the New Testament. So the Old Testament. In our study of Abraham in recent weeks, we have seen him grow in his faith. A few weeks ago, we talked about chapter 16, where he had a faith test that he failed, and uh, God had promised that he would have a son. He's 86 years old in chapter 16, and he has no son yet, and so he agrees to a, a plot, a, a scheme that his wife Sarah has, that he will sleep with his, the, her maidservant, Hagar, and they will bring forth a son, and they did so, and Hagar bore Ishmael. Ishmael was born, but the whole matter did not please God, and God goes into a period of silence between chapter 16 and 17 of Genesis, and for 13 years, Abraham doesn't hear from God. And he has this promise from God that he will have a son that he will make into a gracious nation. Finally, in chapter 17, verse 1, Abraham now is 99 years old. And God speaks again to him. And he repeats the promise that he's going to bear a son. He's going to have a son in his old age. His wife will bear a son. And uh, Abraham, it says in the Bible, falls on his face. Chapter 17 in verse 17, it says, And Abraham fell on his face, and he laughed. He laughed before God. And God, who perhaps has more of a sense of humor than we realize, tells Abraham that he is going to fulfill his promise, that his wife Sarah is going to bear a son for him, and that they are to call his name Isaac. And Isaac, the name, means he laughs. He means, it means laughter. The interesting thing about this is that this introduces a theme in chapter 17 that carries on for about five chapters. And though in all of the first five books of the Bible, in all first five books of the Bible, the word laughter is not found in four of them and only found 11 times in Genesis, the majority of those 11 times are all coupled, are, are crowded around this passage of the birth of Isaac, because his name means he laughs. And so what we see happen is that the author actually toys with that word and employs that word in various ways surrounding the birth of Isaac to convey a message. I would like to suggest in the first half of this sermon, there's five different kinds of laughter 
that the author reveals. The first one we've already looked at, and it is a spontaneous laughter. Chapter 17, 17, Abraham hears about the fact that he's still in his old age, yet going to be a father by his wife Sarah, and he laughs. Spontaneous laugh. It's the kind of laughter that comes and erupts out of sheer surprise at the delightful prospect of something wonderful happening. In chapter 18, God sends three visitors to visit Abraham and Sarah, and the visitors tell Abraham that this time next year, Sarah is going to have a son. She is listening at the door of the tent, and when she hears this, she laughs out loud. This is the first LOL in history, by the way, Sarah laughing out loud. And she laughs out loud, and that, I would call, is a sarcastic laughter. For in this scripture, she's not necessarily commended. God says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh out loud when I said to you that she's going to bear a son next year? Is anything too hard for the Lord? You know, there's an old Yiddish proverb that says, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. (laughs) I think we could say as well, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your excuses. Your excuses for not trusting in the plans that he has for you. Now, Abraham and Sarah had lots of excuses as to why they would not bear children in their old age. Imagine the idea of a 90-year-old woman having a son. Sarah's laugh was sarcastic. It was cynical. I think behind Sarah's laugh in chapter 18 is this idea of, God, don't torment me further. Don't get my hopes up again. Abraham's been talking about this child of promise forever, and he hasn't come yet. A cynical, sarcastic laughter. The next time that the author uses this word is in chapter 19. And in chapter 19, you'll know that that God sends two angels into this city of Sodom because it is wicked, and he must judge that city. And and Abraham intercedes and prays for Sodom, and he says, if there's righteous people there, you wouldn't kill them, would you? And it turns out that the only righteous family that is in Sodom is Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his daughters. And so in the scriptures, it says that, that when Abraham's, the angels here come into Sodom and warn Lot, it says in the scriptures that he runs to tell the two young men who are engaged to be married to his two daughters. In chapter 19, verse 14, he goes to them and he tells them, you've got to get out of the city. God is going to destroy this city because of its wickedness. And the scripture says that they laughed at him. Same word, same word as we find the name Isaac built on. They laughed at him. They laughed, and this kind of laughter is a scornful laughter. A laughter that does not take the holy things of God seriously. A laughter that scorns the things that God is all about because of deep ignorance and blindness. Scornful laughter. We move ahead to chapter 21, and we see that Isaac is born in chapter 21. And Sarah says in verse 6, For God has made laughter for me. And then again in the same verse, it's used a second time, everyone who hears will laugh over me. This isn't laughing at Sarah. This is laughing with Sarah. This is a shared laughter. I picture in my mind Sarah with little Isaac on her lap in her arms. 
and I picture all of her relatives and friends gathered around her laughing at the ridiculous idea that a woman in her 90s who has been barren all her life is now a mother of little Isaac. Shared laughter. And then finally, the last laughter that I want to mention in this is sneering laughter. We see in the scripture that Isaac is weaned in verse chapter 21, verse 8, and uh, in transition from boy into boyhood, Abraham throws a big party in, in Jewish tradition. And in verse 9 of chapter 21, it tells us that Sarah, Sarah's looking out and she sees Isaac's older brother, Ishmael, half-brother, laughing at Isaac. And it says that she is offended. Now, this kind of laughter is a sneering laughter. This is a ridiculing laughter. This is not just innocent teasing from an older brother. Ishmael is about 17 years old at this point, and little Isaac is three years old, having been weaned. And I'm sure that you and I would consider it cruel if we saw a 17-year-old picking on, making fun of a three-year-old. One author explains the text this way. The expectations of Ishmael are shattered. He had grown up confident that he was going to be inheriting the great wealth and power of his father Abraham. And now the true heir appears. And it is dawning upon Ishmael that he is not going to be the one. And he's moved to hatred. And on this occasion of this great feast in honor of his little brother, he is guilty of insolence, mockery, and insult. Sarah quickly tells Abraham, you need to get rid of that slave woman and her son, for they shall not share in the inheritance of our son. And it must have been hard, one of the hardest and greatest challenges of Abraham's entire life, that he had to take his son, his teenage son, with Hagar and Hagar out to the wilderness. And we read in the scripture that there they almost die, except that the Lord hears their cry and answers their prayer and shows them a well, and they live. And we know that from tradition that, that he grows up, Ishmael grows up to be the father of Arab nations. And so we see in the scriptures <clears throat> these five times at least that the word laughter, the name Isaac, is used to describe the entire story surrounding his birth. There's the spontaneous laughter, sarcastic and cynical laughter, scornful laughter, shared laughter, and sneering laughter. And then if we now take the transition into the New Testament and we now look at what Paul has to say about this whole event of Isaac's birth, let's take a look now at how we are to understand it in terms of understanding freedom in Christ and New Covenant teaching. We go to the book of Galatians, and I want you to remember, we studied Galatians last year in our church. I want you to remember that Galatians was written to a group of Christians who are being robbed of their freedom in Christ because of a religious legalism that had entered the church through false teachers. If you were to visit the church in the province of Galatia, the churches there, you would not have found much laughter. There's nothing that kills laughter like legalism and like this kind of self-righteousness. 
And when we walked through Galatians last year, we saw some of the characteristics of legalism. We said that a legalist is someone who keeps a legal list. And the lists vary from one group to the next. In this first century church, the legalists had to do with being circumcised and observing certain holy days of the year and giving certain offerings. And they had all these lists that if you wanted to be a really true Christian that obeyed and pleased God, you'd have to do this. Yes, you could have Jesus, that's necessary, but you had to do Jesus plus. And so legalism, wherever it is and however it's found, we said, focuses on external behavior instead of on the heart. It focuses on our performance individually instead of Christ's payment for our sin. Legalism also is all about rule keeping instead of a loving relationship with our Father, God. And then we also said that rule or that legalism has to do more with bondage to something than it has freedom from something. Legalism is an OCD faith. It's an obsessive Christianity disorder. It's, an, it's a perversion. Last year we talked about legalism as as being spread by RTDs, religiously transmitted diseases, false notions, false teachings, accusations from the enemy, and so on. This kind of religious perversion of Christianity makes people more negative than positive, more critical than encouraging, more judgmental than accepting, and more self-righteous than humble and dependent on Jesus' righteousness. Legalism does not lead to laughter, the kind of holy laughter that comes out of being redeemed, set free, and having a life quorum deo before the presence of God. And so, when we pick up Paul's words in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 22, he borrows from this Old Testament story to convey a New Testament meaning. Look at verse 22 of Galatians 4. It says that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, it says, and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. What does Paul mean? Paul is saying that God never intended Abraham to sleep with Hagar and to bring forth a child that way. Sleeping with Hagar was Abraham's attempt to continue his own family line in his own wisdom. God's plan was that the child would come through Sarah. Isaac would be a miracle baby, not like Jesus was a miracle baby conceived by the Holy Spirit, but he would be a miracle baby in the sense that Abraham and Sarah, way past the time of having children, were going to be able to conceive. And so they were mothers of different relationships, sons of different mothers. And when we see in verse 24, Paul takes this now, and he he says this may be interpreted allegorically. And he says these two women are two covenants. So Paul now has taken the story, and he's now using it to do some teaching about new covenant. These are two ways of relating to God, Old Covenant way and New Covenant way, one that depended on people trying to live up to the standard that God has in their own ability, and the other that required people to see that they cannot please God and that 
but by faith in what God has done through Jesus, they can be enabled to be righteous before God. It's a great illustration. Great illustration because both Sarah and Hagar have completely different relationships with Abraham. One is his lawfully wedded wife, and one is simply a slave girl for the family. And so it's a brilliant, a brilliant illustration. Now let me clarify something at this point. This passage can offend people because, you see, in this scripture... In the actual story, Hagar is the victim forced to sleep with Abraham. And and yet in in the Galatians 4 passage, she's representing something negative, slavery. And and vice versa, in in the Old Testament passage, Sarah is the one who has unbelief and schemes a plan. And yet in the New Testament passage, she represents something positive, which is freedom in Christ. And if we stumble over that, then we don't get the jewel of the message of the new covenant. So again, stay with me. Go with us on this. This is Paul's illustration, and it's kind of in a reverse way of thinking. Verse 25, Paul says, these two covenants that we're talking about that are based on these two women that were wives of Abraham, he says, they represent a different location, Mount Sinai and heaven, the two different Jerusalems too. There's lots of twos in this passage. The two different Jerusalems, one is the Jerusalem of earth and one is the Jerusalem of heaven. And which one are the true people of God from, he says, basically. I like what John Stott writes. John Stott writes this, Jerusalem was the capital city of God, chosen for the land that he had given to his people. It was natural, therefore, that the word Jerusalem would stand for God's people, just like Moscow stands for the Russian people, just like just like um, London stands for the English people and Tokyo for the Japanese and Washington for the Americans and we could add Ottawa for the Canadians. But who are the people of God truly? And Paul says that they are those, verse 26, they are those who belong to the Jerusalem that is from above. He's saying they're the ones that are following the Isaac-like faith and not the Ishmael-like relationship with God. The people of God are those, is it those who lived under the old covenant and failed to please God because they could not live according to that standard, or are they the people who live under the new covenant that please God by faith in what Jesus has done to live the perfect life as a child of God and die a perfect death for our son? our sin. And so <clears throat> we see in this scripture that there are, there's two different births, different natures in this. Verse 28, Paul makes the application now. He says this, brothers, you, you brothers, talking to us too, just as much as he was talking to the believers in the first century. He says, you, like Isaac, are children of promise. You do not have an Ishmael-like relationship with God, born from slavery only to be a slave his entire life because he had a mother as a slave. No, you were born to be free. You have an Isaac-like relationship with God. You do not have to fear God. You do not have to live based on your own strength, your own reputation, your own ability to do good works and to maintain your walk with God. No, no one is good enough to do that. No one can live the Christian life. 
If you are accepted at all, it's going to be because of the promise of God. If you are accepted because of, at all, it's going to be because of what Jesus has done for you and to be part of the family of God. You see, what grieved Paul in the Galatian churches in that province was that, and this was literally happening, people were coming out of worldliness, paganism, and they were coming into the church and they were coming to understand what Jesus Christ did on the cross to forgive them of their sin. And as soon as they came and got into the church, another yoke of slavery was being placed on them by these Judaizers, they were called, by the legalists of the church, the leaders. And they were saying, yes, you now have Jesus and you're forgiven, but it's, but it's this as well. It's Jesus plus. And you need to obey all these rules. And here's the list. And so they were being enslaved all over again from an irreligious slavery to sin to now having a religious slavery to sin and pride, self-righteousness. And so it grieved Paul. And that's why in verse 29, he says, just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, so also it is now, he says, But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Paul is applying that to the New Testament, to us. He is saying, don't let anything and anyone enslave you. You were set free in Christ. And if the son shall set you free, as we sung earlier, you shall be free indeed. Don't let anything enslave you. Not the lust of the flesh and the world and the devil and and all that, but neither religious stuff and garbage. Don't let that enslave you. Rule-keeping and so on. Don't get enslaved. Don't let anything get in the way of your intimacy with God the Father. He loves you. Oh, what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. We were born again to live Coramdale in the presence of God, unashamed, unashamed. No guilt, no shame, no fear. We were born again to do that. And so Paul talks in the final analysis about chapter 5, verse 1. He talks about don't let any yoke of slavery come upon you. He's using this idea of a yoke in a very figurative way any kind of burdens and sins and obligations and guilts and whatevers, don't let that come upon you. You were, you were born again into a living relationship. You have the new spirit of God in you by which you cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. That's the kind of relationship, an Isaac kind of relationship. You know, it's interesting that yokes don't come in all, or yokes come in all shapes and sizes. There, there's not a one yoke fits all. <laughs> when we're talking figuratively about sin and so on. There, there's so, you can pick your poison. There are so many things in this world and in your own heart that can make you stumble and make you fall and, and cause slavery instead of freedom in your life. <laughs> Wrestling with the sin that you're trying to overcome in your own strength, don't be like that. You can't overcome it in your own strength. Don't be like Abraham and Sarah that try to scheme and plot how to overcome and obey in their, in their way. 
fighting against a performance orientation, always comparing yourself with someone else, are you? Don't be like Ishmael, trying to prove your worth compared to little Isaac. Are you prone toward depending on your own spiritual ability and righteousness? Don't be like Hagar, who though she was younger and more fertile, her son was rejected. Let me read to you an extended quote from a book by David Platt. If you go to church, sing songs, study the word, thinking this is how you're going to work to earn God's favor, then you are no different than over one billion Hindus in the world today who are bowing down to their gods. And if your Christianity is a check-off-the-box in order to make you feel good about yourself before God kind of religion in order to save your skin on the day of judgment, then your Christianity is no different than every other religion in the world, and it will ultimately bring you to condemnation. Paul, he writes, is uncovering a scheme of the devil in the first century in Galatians that continues into the 21st century. It's subtly, dangerously deceiving, and here it is. What if Satan's strategy... To condemn your soul involves not tempting you to do all the wrong things, but instead leading you to do all the right things in the wrong spirit. What if Satan actually wants you to attend church, to lead a small group, to lead your home? What if he is in favor of you doing those things just so long as you think that by doing those things, you are working your way into being pleasing to God? It's a life of enslavement, regardless of who or what the master is. For you never know just what is enough. But Jesus, well, he's come to set you free. It is for freedom, Paul says, that Christ has set us free. Do not let yourself be burdened by a yoke of slavery. So who are the people of God? Those who laugh, yeah, in the right way the right reason. It is those who, whether they grew up religious or not, they come to an experience of an Isaac-like faith, completely dependent on the grace of God in Jesus, not an Ishmael-like faith that depends on their own abilities and their own righteousness. They see it only through the promise of God, by the grace of God, in the Son of God, being able to be a child of God and experience the freedom of God. That's how you become part of the people of God. A year ago or so, I was out at our cabin, Pat and I were out at our cabin, and we were, I was burning some brush, and um, at one point I I decided that I could go over to the cabin and just see how Pat was doing, and when I got got over there, she looked over and she saw this fire, and she said, you know, that fire looks pretty big, it looks a little out of control. And I just thought she was kind of overreacting. And so, <clears throat> but I looked over, and sure enough, this fire that I had been tending to now, just a few minutes later, really was bigger and was kind of getting out of control. The fire had started to lick up some of the little spruce trees nearby. And quickly, we ran, and together, we got buckets from the lake, and we, we ran over, and we were able to put this fire out and um, douse it. So otherwise, honestly, it could have been a raging forest fire within 15 minutes easily, causing much destruction. And as I was reflecting on that experience a a couple days later and journaling about it, 
It served to me as a warning, a warning not just about fire or about learning to listen to my wife more often. <laughs> it was actually a warning of how dangerous it is to take any kind of sin too casually. And when I say any kind of sin, I'm not just talking about the bad sins, the worldly sins. I'm talking about the, the subtle religious sins, the self-righteousness, the pride. Any kind of posture before God that, that somehow <clears throat> does not wholly depend on Jesus Christ. Does not, does not really come before the Lord in absolute freedom. That's a dangerous thing. Because if we let that go too long and it gets out of control, it's going to destroy. Whatever kind of enslavement it might be, religious or otherwise, it's going to destroy. So as we conclude this morning, I want to I ask some questions. I want to ask the question, what about you? What about you? Are there any fires in your life that are burning out of control? Has COVID-19 brought out some of the worst in you? Have you admitted to God that you can't keep it under control? Have you reached out to ask for help from someone that God has placed in your life to help you live in a way that doesn't let that thing control you, enslave you? Are you humble enough, like Abraham and Sarah were at finally, to say, God, we tried it our way, and it doesn't work. Now we're gonna do it your way. Are you humble enough to say that? The Bible teaches us that humility is the path. God never rejects the humble. God sends no one away empty except those who are too full of themselves. And so if this describes you in some way, I would like to encourage you. We, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to pray together. You could phone the number at the end of this service. And, um, or maybe call one of the pastors this week. And I would ask you to think about what your laughter is like. Because I believe that Jesus Christ has caused us to be born again into a living hope and into the freedom that he gives as children of God so that we might laugh more. May God bless you.